We are in the book of Acts. We're in the book of Acts. And if you're new to Centerview Church, if you're new, if you haven't been here for the, for, for the series, Acts is part two of two books that Luke writes. Uh, Luke is a physician. Uh, Luke <coughs> is engaged by a man named Theophilus to write an account of all that Jesus did uh, and all that Jesus taught. And this is the second part. And so this book covers the continuation now of what God is doing, of what God is teaching, of what the church is doing. This is what the book of Acts is. And so a lot of the book of Acts is a narrative. It's a story, uh, a true story. It's, it's people's accounts of what happened in the early church. So Luke interviewed people to get these stories. These aren't made up. This is not fiction. Luke is interviewing people and putting together the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So Luke part one and Luke part two, if you want to think of it that way. And in the book of Acts, we're in chapter three today. In chapter one, we see Jesus ascend into heaven. And just as he promised, he sends the Holy Spirit who gives the church a supernatural power, a boldness. Just as Jesus promised, and we see that happen, we see that promise fulfilled in chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost, and the believers are filled. They proclaim, the result of being filled is that they proclaim the mighty works of God. And there are Jews in town, uh, there are Jews, live, Jews living in Jerusalem uh, from different nations. And they speak different languages, but each one of them is able to understand and hear what the disciples and the group of believers is speaking. They can hear them speak the mighty works of God in their own language. It's an incredible miracle that happens and uh, the people think they're drunk. And Peter stands up, full of conviction, full of boldness, and he preaches his first sermon. And the result is that they're convicted, they are cut to the heart, and nearly 3,000 people join the church that day. At the end of chapter 2, we see the church starting to form. They gather, <clears throat> they're learning from the apostles. They're gathering to eat together and to pray together. We see them caring for each other's needs. They're all taking care, watching out for one another. They're going to the temple. They're praising God together. The church is growing. This is the beginning of the church. And that brings us to chapter 3. We started chapter 3 last week, and what we saw was Peter and John, ministry partners, <clears throat> they're going up to the temple, and they see a beggar, a lame beggar. And you learn in chapter 4 that this beggar was over 40 years old, and he was lame from birth. All right, in chapter 4, verse 22, we learn later that this man was over 40 years old. The people coming to the temple it is highly likely that they know this man. They've seen him before. Okay? This man has lived his whole life lame, and he's depended on other people, and many of them are very likely to have actually helped carry him at some point. Many of them have most likely given money to this man at some point. And when Peter and John show up now, this man's life changes. Instead of giving him alms or money, 
Peter and John filled with this new boldness that they have from the Holy Spirit. They tell the men to rise and to walk. And he doesn't just get up. The Bible says he leaps up. He leaps and he follows Peter and John into the temple to praise God. Can you imagine what it's like to be that man to enter the temple now walking for the first time in your life? Remember, this man is familiar to them. They've seen this man for decades, most likely. They're asking for money. And when they see him come in, leaping, praising God, it causes bewilderment. It causes wonder and it causes amazement in them. Everybody rushes out to a place called Solomon's Portico, which is on the outside. (coughs) They rush to Peter and John. Now, what's the problem here? Because we get the sense that this isn't good from what Peter says. What does Peter say there? Can you? What's up here? Why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we've made him walk? Not all wonder is worship, and not all amazement is praise. The people are directing their amazement and their wonder at Peter and John instead of God. So Peter's going to correct this. See, miracles can amaze people, but they don't always lead people to Jesus. They don't always point people to God. Miracles can draw attention, but they don't always transform people. The instinct of the crowd when they observe this miracle is to stare at Peter and John as though they have some level of piety uh, and good moral character that unlocks some secret magical power. This is the reaction of the crowd. And again, Peter's going to correct this quickly, just like he corrected the crowd when they thought they were drunk in chapter 2. He's going to use this moment, he's going to use this miracle as the jumping off point for his next sermon. If this were a couple weeks ago, Peter might have pulled out his knife and started chopping off ears like he did in Gethsemane when they tried to arrest Jesus. But now Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. The same man who denied Jesus three times a couple weeks ago. He denied Jesus three times out of fear of being associated with Jesus. The same man at the end of Luke who's filled with grief because he denies Jesus now is going to, instead of violence or fear, he is going to with boldness proclaim the gospel to all of these people. And he's going to tell them some very harsh and difficult truths. What a transformation has happened in Peter. So Peter begins to address the crowd now. And one thing to note here, and not just here, but all of Acts, is that Peter leans on Scripture to make his argument, to make his case. Peter and the rest of the apostles have a very high view of the Bible. In chapter 1, if you have your Bible, if you want to flip back in verses 16 onward, he uses Scripture to interpret the events surrounding Judas. Peter says this in verse 16, chapter 1. Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Jesus. Peter looks back into God's written word 
and asserts that it was spoken, that it was given by the Holy Spirit and spoken by David. In chapter 2, when the people accuse the apostles of being drunk, Peter points back to who? To Joel. He says, hey, the prophets talked about this moment. They spoke about this moment. He speaks, he, he points back to Joel. He points back to the Psalms. He points back to David. He uses the word of God to help people understand what it is that is happening in front of them. If you flip forward in your Bible to the letter that Peter writes to the churches, so that's uh, 2 Peter, to the second letter that he writes to the churches, so 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, here's what Peter, this same Peter, says about the word of God. He says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying that the Bible is written by men, but it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is God's word. In other words, it's authoritative. What does that mean? It means that the Bible has the authority to tell us who Jesus is, how to live, so on and so forth. The Bible is God's word. It is authoritative. And we see it here again in chapter 3. Peter's going to use the, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, to help them understand the miracle. Peter points to who? He points to <clears throat> Abraham and uh, Isaac and Jacob and Moses to make his case. These people need biblical teaching. He doesn't just want them to understand the miracle. He wants them to know and understand uh, how this miracle connects to God's plan for salvation through Jesus. Peter is careful to make his argument, to make sure that his case rests on the authority of Scripture so that it's undeniable to these people so that they can no longer claim ignorance. Just like Peter and the apostles, just like the early church, the church's convictions what we believe should always be rooted in Scripture. God's Word makes sense of our experiences. God's Word makes sense of the facts of life. Every experience needs to be interpreted through Scripture. In other words, we should always be asking, what does the Bible say about this? If you have ever gone to William with any problem, I can almost guarantee you his response is, what does the Bible have to say about this? If someone goes into a coma and claims to have received a special message and special instructions from God, we ask, what does the Bible have to say about this? Well, it says that God speaks through his word, not through individual private experiences. So we know that that was not God speaking. If someone claims to have been visited by the Virgin Mary, for example, who instructs them to do penance for themselves and for other people, we ask, what does God's word have to say about this? Well, we know from God's work that Jesus died once and for all, and that only through him do we have redemption of our sins and forgiveness of our sins. We read that in Ephesians. I remember one man coming to my dad and told him that he heard God in an audible voice tell him to leave his wife for another woman. What do we ask? What does the Bible have to say about this? I wish I were lying, but I'm not. It happened. 
every experience is subject to the word of God. God's people reason from the scriptures. We don't make stuff up. If we're going to be like the church in Acts, then we have to hold fast to scripture. We have to hold fast to the authority of God's word. Why? Because here's what the Bible says in Hebrews. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you want to be relevant in today's culture, you preach the gospel. You want to reach young people, you preach the gospel. You want to reach old people, you preach the gospel. You want to confront radical Marxist anti-Christian ideas, what do you do? You preach the gospel. You want to combat capitalist, radical, money-hungry corporations and executives, what do you do? You preach the gospel. The gospel is the ice axe that pierces through our frozen hearts. The gospel is the greatest enemy to sin because it exalts the person of Jesus who is the antidote to sin and death. God doesn't build his church, his kingdom, on the unique personal experiences or cool programs of the church. The church is built by faithfully preaching and living out the word of God. Amen? There's another lesson here for us in this early section of of chapter 3. Look at how quickly the people switch from worshiping God to staring at Peter and John. They were just in the temple worshiping God. And now they come out and they direct one miracle and all of their amazement and wonder is directed at Peter and John. We have the same tendency, picking up on William's thought from last week. We have an easy time applauding, celebrating, shouting the achievements of man. Whether it's a sporting event, an athlete, an entrepreneur, a well-crafted product, even a sermon. We love to highlight the achievements of men. We take the good things that God made and we direct our wonder at them. We're prone to wander. We're prone to worship the creation instead of the creator himself. Our sinful nature takes the good things that God created and makes them ultimate things. And we forget that all the beautiful things in the world are meant to point us to God. Things and people will fail us, I promise you. A sports team makes for a terrible God. But let me tell you, it can remind us That God defeats Satan on the world stage. And everyone will be there to witness it. Art and artists make for terrible gods, uh, but they can remind us to seek something more satisfying and more beautiful in the ultimate creator, God himself. Entrepreneurs and leaders make for terrible gods, but they can remind us of the craving that we have for the one who set everything in motion, who created the world, who takes on projects like Peter, who sends us on a mission. Direct your amazement at God, and you'll see the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Part of the reason we gather together here at church, part of the reason we sing together at church is to reorient our thinking, to reorient our affections towards God again. 
our prayer meetings and youth events and women's groups and picnics. The goal, we're not a social club. And so the goal is to reorient our affections and thinking towards God. We are meant to spur each other on in the faith, to join together and to encourage each other towards Jesus. Pray that God in his mercy will surround you with people that will point you back to Christ when you wander away from him. Here's another observation of this section. Uh, Peter and John are very quick to point that wonder and amazement back at God. For those of us who God uses to expand his kingdom, don't be fooled into thinking that God is using you because of some natural goodness, innate talent, or magical power inside of you. God uses who he wants. If we overvalue our own abilities and, <clears throat> and our contribution to God's kingdom, we grow arrogant and proud. We actually start believing uh, that we're better than other people. But on the flip side, here's the other problem. If you're a less confident person, what happens if you overvalue people's abilities is that you can be led to desperation. If you believe that God works uh, through people because of their abilities, power, gifts, and moral character, you might start thinking yourself of yourself as worthless because you don't have any of those. You might come to believe the lie that you have nothing to offer. So an unhealthy view of yourself, whether you're more confident or less confident, can lead to arrogance or desperation. And it's rooted in the same problem. You value your natural talent too much. Know this, God is not moved by our personal piety. God is not moved by our good character or good works. God was moved out of his own goodness and his own love for us. While a sinner, the Bible says, we sing this here, while still a sinner, while still an enemy, while a foe, what happened? Jesus was sent to die for us. There was nothing you did to deserve it, and there is nothing you can do to undo it. God is not impressed by your talent, but God is not limited by your talent. We are encouraged to have a healthy view of ourselves. We are loved by Jesus and used by Jesus. Isn't that an incredible comfort? He uses who he wants. He picks who he wants to be on his team. Peter wasn't a preacher when Jesus called him. He was fishing. That was his career. He was a fisherman. That's what he knew. In fact, in Acts, we will see that when they call uh, the apostles to give an account for what they believe and what the, the crazy stuff they're saying, they're like, these guys aren't that smart. Like, they don't speak in any particularly special way. These are regular people that God is using to do his work to change the course of history. If the good news is going to make its way into our city, it's not because our church is powerful, filled with powerful and moral people. It spreads because we're filled with the boldness of the Holy Spirit. Amen? The church isn't what it is because we have competent people. The church is successful because there's a group of people here who gather to declare their need and their dependence on God. 
There's a reason so many people are disillusioned and disenchanted and upset with the church. They put way too much focus on the people doing the work and not on the one who sent him, Jesus Christ. You put your wonder and amazement at the people doing God's work and you will be let down. I promise you. Somebody at Centerview Church will let you down. And over the course of the next couple decades that God permits you to live, you will be let down several times. Set your eyes on Jesus. He was perfect, never failed. Jesus was glorified by God. Amen? Next, Peter's going to confront his audience with the reality of what Jesus, of what they did to Jesus. The same guy who was afraid to be associated with Jesus at the end of Luke, he's now telling this crowd, many of whom were there calling for Jesus' crucifixion, that they killed Jesus. Peter is going to remind them of what they did, but more importantly, he's going to remind them of who they did it to. Peter doesn't just lay out the charges. He's going to use this opportunity to tell them who it was they sinned against. Who is Jesus? Who does Peter say Jesus is? Well, first Peter says he was innocent, holy, and righteous. Here's what he tells the crowd. Not even Pilate, the Gentile Pilate, the pagan Pilate, the Roman Pilate, not even he found Jesus guilty. Even Pilate recognized that Jesus didn't deserve death. But Jesus wasn't just innocent before Pilate in a human court. Peter pushes their understanding further. Peter says, this man was innocent before God in God's court. He was holy and righteous. Now that's a statement that's going to cause some shock to these people. Peter is saying that Jesus was as holy as Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what Peter is saying. You know that God that you know that you've worshipped? Jesus was as holy as him and righteous as him. Peter is saying, in other words, that Jesus is God. He can only be that holy and that righteous because he is God. This isn't just another man you ignored, he's telling them. Peter is saying, you killed God himself. I had to read through the end of Luke a couple times um, because the transformation in Peter is so incredible. This man is telling devout Jews that they killed Jesus and that Jesus was God. This is blasphemous to some people. But he stands up filled with the Holy Spirit. We cannot forget what this scene looks like at Solomon's portico at the temple. Next, he's going to call. So he calls Jesus holy, righteous, innocent. Then he calls Jesus the author of life. He says, you killed him. Two bold statements. You killed the author of life. He's saying he accuses the people of murder. And then he calls Jesus the creator of life, something they had only ever attributed to God the Father. He's asserting, again, the deity of Jesus, saying that he was there at the beginning when all things were created, when all things were made. Uh, <clears throat> Peter is doing the talking here. But remember, Peter is with John, his ministry partner. They're together at Solomon's portico. 
Listen to what John says in his gospel. Remember, we just, we just read through this at Christmas. John chapter 1, verse 3. Through him all things were made. This is P- Peter's talking. John is right beside him. This is what John says in his gospel. Okay? Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was light of all mankind. Peter and John both agree, both believe that Jesus has always been. And that through him all things were created. They share this belief that Jesus is God. Next thing Peter is going to do is he's going to prove the he's going to prove to them that Jesus is innocent, holy, righteous, and the author of life. How does he do that? How does he prove this? Well, he's going to prove it by pointing to the resurrection and to the glorification of Jesus. They denied Jesus, but God glorified him. They killed Jesus, but Peter says God raised him up. And that's important. This might be one of the most important events in all of Christian history. Because without the resurrection, we don't know if Jesus' death worked. I want you to think about that for a second. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, so what? How do you know that he was qualified to do that work? Plenty, the church has had plenty of martyrs. The church has had plenty of people die for its cause, some in worse ways than Jesus. What makes Jesus unique and special? What makes him qualified for the job of atoning for our sins? The proof is that Jesus raised him up, that he resurrected. How would you know if God's wrath was satisfied if Jesus didn't resurrect? Was it enough? Without the resurrection, we have no confidence that Jesus is mediating and interceding on our behalf at the Father's right hand. Because he did rise again, we know that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. God said, yes, I will accept that perfect sacrifice. I will accept that on behalf of all of the world. All of those who believe it, I will accept Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf. If his sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, was accepted by the Father, then in fact Jesus was then holy and righteous. The resurrection wasn't witnessed by one or two people. Scripture tells us that over 500 people witnessed that event. In addition... To that, so did the disciples and the believers, which are not included in that number. And remember, Luke, Luke is an investigator. He's commissioned by someone to get all the facts together and put them in a book. Peter tells these people, we're witnesses. We saw Jesus after he rose again. So his proof that Jesus is wholly righteous innocent and the author of life is that he was accepted by the father and rose again that's good news for us because if you believe in jesus you are accepted and loved by the father too jesus's resurrection changed everything for us we no longer need to atone for our sin the way the hebrew people had to atone for their sin in the old testament we can believe in jesus believe that he is in fact who he says he is And we can be made righteous like Jesus is righteous.
Peter's going to go on to explain the miracle. He tells them that <coughs> it was faith in Jesus' name that healed the man. What does faith in Jesus' name mean? It's not the name itself that holds the power, but the name, but the person that the name points to. There is authority in the person with that name. So to have faith in Jesus' name is to have faith that he is who he says he is and that he has the authority that he claims to have. To have faith in Jesus' name is to understand and believe that Jesus was innocent, uh, that he died, that he was holy and righteous, and that he rose again from the dead by the Father, and he was glorified by the Father. This is what it means to have faith in Jesus' name. There is power in the name of Jesus because there's power in the person of Jesus. This name is so incredible and his authority so incredible that even people who didn't follow Jesus while he was on earth used the name and it worked. We read an account in Mark where John, this John, comes to Jesus and says, hey, there's people using your name and casting out demons. We got to stop them. We tried to stop them. And Jesus says, leave them. They're working in my name. That's how powerful the name of Jesus is. That's how incredible his authority is. And I want to be clear about this. Peter's not calling these people to have faith. It's not enough to have faith. It's not enough to say you have faith. Have you ever met people like that? I've met quite a few. They're very spiritual and and they'll tell you, oh, I have so much faith. Oh, I believe that there is something. I have so much faith. I'm a faith-filled person. The question we need to ask is faith in what and faith in who? That's the question we need to ask. I want you to imagine for a second. Close your eyes. You're out swimming. And <clears throat> things are not going well. You forget how to swim. This actually happened to my mom. She forgot how to swim in the middle of the pool for some reason. And you start drowning. Okay, and you're flapping right now and you call to the deck and you say, pass me an anchor. That's the object that you choose. Pass me the anchor. And, you know, people on the sure will pass you an anchor. They don't know what's going on. They throw an anchor to you. You put all of you are the most faith filled person in that moment because you are going to drown and die. And so you hold on to that anchor for dear life. You put all of your trust and all of your faith and all of your belief in that anchor. What happens when you hold on with all of your love and care and tenderness and faith to that anchor? What happens? You sink. The anchor was the wrong object to ask for in that moment. The anchor was not what you should have put your faith in. Faith did nothing to save you in that moment. You can have all the faith in the world. That anchor is going to take you right to the bottom of the ocean, right to the bottom of the pool. You get where I'm going with this. The object of your faith needs to be Jesus or it doesn't matter. 
faith doesn't save. Faith in Jesus saves. This is, this is good news for Peter and John, too, because Peter is telling this crowd that they killed Jesus. But Peter and John know that they're guilty, too. They need to have this faith in Jesus. They all ran away. All the disciples, when Jesus got arrested, ran away and were filled with fear. Peter and John, both of them. Peter, even worse, because we read accounts of him denying Jesus. We've already spoken about that. They're guilty too. Peter didn't want to be associated with Jesus. Like, oh, I think you're the guy. Who's with no, it wasn't me. And he swears that he wasn't with Jesus. Peter and John are as guilty as everyone else they're accusing of murder. They know that. In fact, we all are. The people yelling for Jesus' crucifixion represent you and me. They represent all of humanity. Our sin, the sin of humankind, put Jesus on the cross. Peter calls people to repent, but it's something that he's had to do too. And I want to, <clears throat> the text says that uh, Peter tells his audience, tells the crowd that uh, they're ignorant kind of softens the message now and he says listen I know that you were ignorant of what you did you killed him we killed him but you were ignorant of what you did and <clears throat> he's calling for repentance now in the in the the the, in the end of this section he's going to call for repentance but he's also said that they're ignorant how do you reconcile both of those things because it seems odd hey you didn't know what you were doing but you have to repent well both are true God uses the decisions of sinful people for his purposes, but unintentional sin is still sin. In the book of Numbers, again, if you have your Bible, in chapter 15, verses 22, we read, this is the book of Numbers, that accidental sin still required atonement. Listen to that. There were provisions in the law that God gave Israel in the event that someone unwittingly or unknowingly sinned. I've been reading through Job, and at the beginning of Job, what we read is that Job's children would get together every once in a while, and they would have a feast, and they would party. And Job, concerned for them, would go and offer burnt sacrifices just in case they sinned against God. Unintentional sin is still sin. Ignorance is not an excuse for sin. It still needs to be atoned for. This is what Peter is telling them. I know you're ignorant, but this sin still needs to be atoned for. There still needs to be a reckoning. Peter accuses them, but he's going to now extend God's mercy to them. And he's going to tell them God has blessed us with the gift of repentance and forgiveness. In the end of this section, you'll read 
verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Repentance is a blessing from God. And he quotes just before that, he quotes Abraham, the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. God promises Abraham that through his seed, through his offspring, through his children, that the nations of the world would be blessed. This comes through, this comes true through Jesus. That's what it's saying there. Through your offspring, through your seed. Peter uh, understands this word offspring or seed. If you flip to Galatians chapter 3, Paul makes it clear that this promise is referring to Jesus. The seed is Jesus. The child, the offspring, the specific individual who the promise refers to is Jesus. And through Jesus, everyone is going to be blessed. And what is the blessing? The repentance, the turning away from wickedness. That is the blessing that is promised to every nation in the world because of Jesus' work. Incredible. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham through whom blessings come to the world. And if you want to proof of that, you can flip open to Matthew right at the beginning on your way home. Just read the genealogy and you'll see that Jesus can be traced all the way back to Abraham. This is good news for the Jewish people to whom this promise was, was originally given. But it's good news for everyone. If you repent, and believe in Jesus, if you have faith in his name, you're in the family. That's all it takes. The true children of Abraham now are children by faith, not by blood. Peter points the crowd, and he's pointing us this morning to the blessing of repentance that's available through Jesus. There are wonderful benefits to repentance. And he lays them out. There are three benefits that Peter talks about. He says, your sins will be blotted out. You will be refreshed and healed from your sin. And you will enjoy God's full plan of salvation end to end. When Christ returns again to restore all things, three promises that come with repentance. Again, your sins will be blotted out. Uh, you will be refreshed and healed from your sin, and you will enjoy the restoration that comes when Jesus returns one day to collect his church. The term blotted out means to wipe away, to, to erase, to obliterate. <clears throat> In ancient times, uh, ink didn't soak into the paper. To get rid of the ink on the paper, all you need to do is wipe it away, to wash it off, and it would be good as new. That's the metaphor that Peter is using here. He's saying, repent, believe in Jesus, clean slate. It's as if it never were. The promise is that God will wipe away every sin, every record of wrongdoing. Man, that's hopeful. Believe in Jesus, have faith in him, and he will leave no trace of your sin, no residue of your sin in his book. Remarkable. 
There is no sin that he can't blot out, that he won't blot out. There is no evil habit that he can't free you from. Listen to what uh, 1 John says, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the promise that we are given. The second promise is that times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. Uh, the time of, ref of refreshment uh, refers to a time that includes rest, a cooling down, f uh, a relief from, from trouble, a healing. We're now new creations in Christ Jesus. We can enjoy now the refreshment that comes with the forgiveness of our sins. We're no longer under condemnation. We can enjoy the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We can enjoy doing the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do now. Free from thinking that those good works are going to earn us something. We can do them with a clear conscience and with confidence that we are already acceptable because Jesus was accepted by the Father. If we turn away from sin to Jesus, we can be refreshed. That's the second promise that Peter says comes with repentance. The first one was the blotting out of our sins. The second one is refreshment. The third one is the restoration of all things. The refreshing that Peter talks about is only a foretaste of the final refreshment that comes when Jesus comes to collect his church and he wipes away all sin and death. This is the ultimate restoration of all things. The final annihilation of sin and death. Peter is urging repentance so that we can participate in God's entire plan for salvation from start to finish. So we can enjoy Jesus when he returns. So we don't have to fear judgment of God anymore. So we don't have to worry about God's wrath. Jesus' blood, Jesus' work is the covering, our protection, and our shield, our shelter from God's wrath. We can now long for the return of Jesus. If you are not covered by the blood of Jesus, his return is scary. If you are covered by the blood of Jesus, you long for it. And you say, come Jesus, come. There's a significant difference in your attitude to the return of Jesus if you have turned to him. What does it mean to repent? <clears throat> Repentance is becoming aware of our sin. There is an intellectual understanding that we've missed God's mark. That's the first step. You're aware of your sin. You acknowledge the sin. The second is that you mourn over it. Your sin causes grief in you. You know that something's not right, that it wasn't right, that you don't want to be this way. There is a mourning that comes with repentance, but you don't stay there. That's what the world offers. The world will leave you desperate in your grief. <clears throat> the world will make you feel bad. But repentance comes with a turning to Jesus. You acknowledge your sin, you mourn over it, but then you turn to Jesus and you're filled with the Holy Spirit now so you can obey him.
You can change course. That's the final step in repentance. Let me tell you, it's not enough to come to church and listen. It's not enough to gather here. Don't fool yourself. Just because you come here doesn't mean you're a follower of Jesus. It doesn't mean you're in the family. If you continue to live in sin and you come to church, it doesn't do much. If the word hasn't penetrated your heart and given you an understanding of your sin and caused you to turn to Jesus, if there hasn't been transformation, coming to church, it's better than not coming, but you're not in the family of God. It's not enough to reform a little. Jesus wants all of you. If you're hesitating, let me ask you this. If you're one of those people who comes and and you have not repented and you are not the type of person who has come to Jesus, yet let me ask you this, has sin satisfied you? Has sin given you what you wanted? Has sin given you what you've been seeking? Has it done what you expected? Is it worth it? That's my question to you. There's a quote I read the other day that I'm going to appropriate for this. If you dive deep into the the ocean of sin, I promise you that you will dig up more gravel than pearls. I'll tell you from personal experience that sin is a terrible master. It deceives and it lies. It keeps demanding more of you every time. It never satisfies. There is a better master. There is a God who loves you so much who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to be the perfect and acceptable sacrifice so that your sin could be atoned for, so that you could have the covering and shelter of Jesus. This morning, I pray that you would come to Jesus. If you need repentance, I pray that you would this morning. Let's stand, let's pray, let's sing. Father, we thank you because you are a good father. And before the foundation of the world, before we ever existed, you already decided to heal us. You had already decided to send Jesus to save us. You did that out of your goodness and your love, not because you found anything in us that merited it. Lord, we thank you because when we were sinners and enemies, you came and you found us. We thank you, God. We pray, Lord, that if there are hearts here this morning that need repentance, that need to come to Jesus, that need to turn away from sin and to you, we pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them this morning, Father. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do its thing this morning and transform and change hearts, God. I pray, Lord. Amen.